This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Nicole Brinkerhoff was raised in Texas and moved to Utah to attend BYU. After receiving a bachelor's and master's degree in marriage, family, and human development, she took a job in Washington, D.C. as a fellow at the Heritage Foundation, doing research on marriage and public policy. Soon after, she pursued a master of public administration in nonprofit management and was later employed with the National Organization of Marriage and the Ruth Institute, advocating for traditional marriage and working with college students to articulate the case for marriage and family in the public square. She formed several student groups at BYU to organize advocacy conferences for the family and also worked to organize rallies at the Utah State Capitol to promote traditional marriage. She met her sweetheart in 2015 and decided to advocate for her own family after that and has been living on a small farm in a small town in eastern Utah since then. Currently, she is the mom of three children, three and under, and loves living the rural life with her family. Now our interview with Nicole Brinkerhoff. I'm excited to have Nicole here with me today, and we're just going to jump right in. Um, So Nicole, tell me, when do you first recall feeling the spirit in your life? Uh. Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think probably most people would say they don't have a distinct um, experience or, or something, but I do. I remember being in primary. I don't remember how old I was, but I imagine I was five or six, maybe, I don't know, maybe even younger. But we were seeing in primary families can be together forever. And I remember feeling this strange feeling and I started crying. It it was um, it, the feeling itself wasn't strange. It was a nice feeling, but I remember being a little confused about why these tears were coming out of my eyes. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know what the spirit was um, per se. I hadn't felt that kind of a manifestation before, um, but I remember it. I've always remembered it. And anytime I hear that song, I remember that experience and it's interesting to me because I have I have three children now and my daughter is two and a half and our scripture study I have a I have a almost four-year-old a two and a half year old and a baby and so we have we get very creative with our scripture study um, to keep their attention <laughs> which mm-hmm. they have a five minute attention span you know so it always involves songs because they love songs my daughter loves singing and um The first time that we played I Am a Child of God for her, she started crying. And I was realizing that she was having the same experience I was. And she turned to her dad and said, eyes, eyes, because she had tears in her eyes, you know. She wasn't crying because she was sad. And I could tell that was confusing to her, but so tender and precious, too. And. I just was reading a conference talk about how even little babies can feel the spirit of the Lord. And Mm. anyway, so that's my earliest recollection. I'm sure I felt it even earlier than that as well, but that's the one that I remember. So I love that so much. 
I, I think sometimes, I mean, I teach a primary class of seven and eight year olds. And when I'm trying to get a word in edgewise, because they're just so boisterous and have so much to say and get so easily distracted, sometimes we forget that children really can feel the spirit. And so long as we just create an atmosphere, and often I feel like music does that, um, that, that they are fully capable of feeling the spirit from a young age and can be converted from a young age. So that's a beautiful experience. Thank you for sharing that. So what, what was your upbringing like in the church then growing up? Well, I, um, I, my parents got married um, shortly after my dad got back from his mission to Korea. Um, they were young. My mom was 19 and my dad was 21. And <clears throat> they went off to BYU. So I was born at Provo, Utah. Um, they were living in Wyview at the time and going to school. And um, my older brother was also born there. And, um, and then after my dad graduated, from college, we moved to um, Midland, Texas. That, so that's where I grew up was in Texas um, with my older brother and them. They had a younger brother. We had a younger brother in between there. So anyway, so me and my two brothers um, grew up in in, Houston, in Midland, Texas, the first 12 years of my life, and then moved to Houston, Texas after that. And my, uh, my parents were always faithful. They were always... Um, I remember, so we lived outside of Houston when I was a little bit older, um, and my dad commuted into Houston every day, which was about a two-hour drive one way. So he would have to get up really early in the morning to commute into work, and he would wake us up at 5 a.m. to do scripture study, and we just all hated it. You know, we would drag our feet, and we would moan and groan mm-hmm. and complain That's about early. it, and we would hide under blankets, and we would just... <laughs> weren't helpful at all but they um my dad was persistent and uh and he made it happen and even before um those years i remember when i was young reading my scriptures with my family and you know scriptural language is very advanced linguistically (laughs) but even as a young kid i remember we read scriptures so often that i felt like i understood those words and that and that helped me with my reading in school too, because I had spent so much time hearing those words in the scriptures and knew how to say things right and pronounce things and knew what these weird words sounded like. So anyway, my parents were always very, especially my mom, very faithful. And I would catch them reading their scriptures. And my mom was always carrying around the conference edition of the Enzyme and highlighting things and she loved church and she was the kind that cried at everything and she was mm-hmm. always playing the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in our home. She loved music as well. And anyway, so I grew up in a very, very faithful home. The gospel was always part of our lives, always always went to church and anyway, that was just that was my my life and um as I came into my own personhood um, when I was a teenager, I became very involved with my with the seminary and my young women leaders, and I struggled with teenage anxiety. And my my youth leaders really helped me through that, and I learned to rely on the Spirit. Um, I, I really struggled with um, some abandonment issues when I was 
um, younger, and I, I really learned to rely on the the spirit of the Lord when I was at a young age to to give me comfort and to help me to feel um, peace when I was feeling those feelings of anxiousness. Mm. Uh, and my parents taught me taught me how to do that. So anyway, I came from a very strong uh, faith-centered home and they taught me the tools that I needed to build a relationship with the Lord and to feel the spirit and yeah that's kind of where my faith journey started I guess. When did things start to shift in that family dynamic? Well um, when the internet came out (laughs) Hmm. um, I was about a a sophomore in high school when my dad brought home our first computer and this was a big deal I know there are some people that have never had an existence without the internet but the internet was new and exciting and my dad brought home a computer um, these were back in the days when we had f- phones that had these 20-foot cords that I would uh, I would take and ravel all the way into the closet and talk to boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my mom and I would fight over who was on the phone and I ended up getting my own separate phone line, paying for my own phone line. That was a big deal. You know, we didn't have cell phones or anything back then, but anyway, so my mom, my mom was a very social person, uh, very social and connected deeply with lots of people friends and relationships were very important to her so she got online and she found these chat support groups and um oh man once she once she realized that there was an endless amount of people that she could connect to online in chat rooms she was on the computer all the time and um and that turned out to not be a really great thing. It was, it, we didn't really recognize what was happening, but she would spend all of her time on the computer and mm. chatting into the late hours of the night and then get up for seminary and she would be going to bed and she stopped participating in scripture study and she would sleep all day and um, then she would stay up all night and my brother um, left on his mission to South Korea when I was, uh, I guess I was a senior in high school. And that was really hard for my mom. She really, um, really had a hard time coping with that. She kind of had an emotional breakdown. And she looked for her comfort in her online relationships on on in her chat rooms and things just kind of kept deteriorating as far as her connecting with us as a family and my dad stopped sleeping in their bedroom he started sleeping in my brother's room and things were weird she stopped going to church and i i was really really distressed about that Anyway, I was a senior in high school, and I had a car by then, and my own job, and a boyfriend, and I was busy doing my things, but I was really worried about my mom, because my whole life she had, the church had been, had played a really big role in her life, and and it was strange for her to not be going to church, and I kind of noticed a, a light in her eyes that was missing, 
So anyway, I, I was worried about my parents and their relationship. And that, that summer I went to EFY my senior year and, um, I prayed about my parents and their relationship. I was really worried and I got a very distinctive answer that everything would be okay. And I took a lot of comfort in that. I thought, well, this is wonderful. It's just a matter of time then and things will go back to normal and I don't need to worry anymore. And soon after that, I went off to school. I went off to BYU. Um, my little brother, he was 16. He still had a couple more years of school left. My parents were still kind of on the rocks. and um, But it was okay because they were going to be fine. That's the answer I got, you know. Mm-hmm. And went off to BYU. And after my first semester there, right before Christmas break, I got a phone call. And it was my mom and dad. And they said, we're getting a divorce. And we wanted to let you know and I just felt like my whole world was gonna fall apart well was falling apart (laughs) my um my high school boyfriend had just left on his mission so he was in the MTC and um and I felt like I didn't have a support network I'd just gone to college you know so I didn't have really good friends there yet and I was just I was just devastated I still remember going to the Provo, Utah Temple, and that night that I got the phone call and sitting on the hill and thinking, why did you tell me everything was going to be okay? This is not okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I felt betrayed. And I remember looking at the temple and thinking, "Why, why do I stay? Why would I stay here? You betrayed me. He told me everything would be fine. And my my boyfriend is gone in that MTC prison across the street, and I can't talk to him. I don't have anyone to talk to. And what am I going to do? I felt like I was at a crossroads, you know. And um, Tara, I'm not certain why still, but I decided that day I'm going to stay anyway. I'm going to, I'm going to (laughs) stay and maybe it will be okay somehow. So anyway, I I remember going back to my dorm room and my roommates were there and they were really nice, put their arms around me and went home to Texas that year for Christmas and my mom had um, moved out. She was staying with some friends in Houston for a while, but somewhere in this uh, time period, I um, I had picked up the phone when my mom was having a conversation with one of her friends in the chat room, which was not uncommon, but it was a woman, and she was saying things to her that were really confusing to me, and it made me wonder if she was in a relationship with this woman, and I uh, confronted her about it, and she said no, no. Of course not. No, I would never. (laughs) So I rested easy on that, but I was still confused about my mom's behavior, you know. And anyway, not soon after they decided to get divorced, my mom um, decided to move to Missouri and um, with this woman that she had met online. She, they had gone on several trips um, together and I had met her 
a couple of times, but I didn't know her well. But it became obvious to me then that she was in a relationship with this woman and and that she was um, same-sex attracted. And and that was that. That was So that was back in 2000, um, so almost 20 years ago. And back then, it was not a very common thing. <laughs> and so I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell a soul. And... Um, and so my mom basically left the church. Uh, she decided she was done wearing garments, and and it just it just rocked me. It rocked my whole world. I couldn't understand it. It it was beyond my comprehension that someone like my mom could leave the church because the church was everything to her. So I didn't understand how that was possible. But um, anyway, soon after I decided to. I had my own adventures at college and dating new boys and my my high school boyfriend came home from his mission and despite all of my childhood dreams I did not marry him. <laughs> he decided he wanted to date other people when he got home from his mission so I thought well fine I'm going to go on a mission then <laughs> and really more to get him to try to turn around and get me to stay home that more than anything. Um, <laughs> I uh, put in my mission papers and much to my dismay it did not change his course of action he did not say oh I've made a terrible mistake stay home and marry me um, instead I got a call to South Korea <laughs> I went on a mission and um, that was a very pivotal time for me spiritually as well I got to know the Lord better and understand I, I built a stronger relationship with him and understood his purposes better. Um, it was still a big sore spot in my life, my family, whenever we were teaching the discussions and families can be together forever and temple covenants came up. I always had my companions teach that part because it was so difficult for me. And, and, and back then too, 20 years ago in Korea, divorce was just a very unheard of kind of thing. It was a tragedy. When people heard that my parents were divorced, they would start comforting me and <laughs> asking me all these details. And so I just didn't, I didn't talk about my family very much. Um, but I did know that if the Lord said it was going to be okay, even though what seemed like had happened was the exact opposite of okay, that um, he had a plan. And and I was, I was going to trust him. And anyway, so I could just go on and on, I guess. But that's kind of how things shifted in my family. And um, at some point um, after my mom moved to Missouri with her partner, she had, she was called to a disciplinary council with the church and decided not to go uh, instead wrote in and asked for her name to be removed, which is essentially the same as excommunication. Her temple ordinances were canceled and and her um, baptismal record and all of that. And she decided she wanted nothing more to do with the church. So she, anyway, had some obviously mixed feelings about her ecclesiastical leaders and the way they treated her and um the disciplinary council or calling her to the disciplinary council she was angry that they had done that at all and anyway but she she never lost her testimony of the church she was angry about um the way that she was being treated but she always knew that the church was true the gospel was true and um 
And she also always felt tremendous guilt for what she was doing. She always felt like what she was doing was wrong. And she felt a tremendous guilt for breaking up our family. And it took a lot of um, um, not positive coping mechanisms for her to deal with that guilt every day for for a long time, for 20 years. So anyway. That could be a real challenge to maintain a relationship with your mom through that kind of a, a journey. And in general, it's a challenge to stay positively connected with any family members or friends whose lives have really deviated from the gospel path. But we know as disciples of Christ, we are to love our neighbor regardless of our differences. So how were you able to navigate that relationship with your mom at that time so you could still have a positive relationship but still hold to your covenants and and defend the church? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's so um, easy to ask and so difficult to (laughs) respond to uh, in a succinct way, I guess, because these things are really messy. It was really difficult to have a relationship with my mom after the divorce. Um, She wanted so deeply to be connected to me, and as a result, she would also sometimes pretend that she was um, being more faithful than she was, or she, for example, when she came out for my college graduation, um, to BYU, she was a nervous wreck, but anyway, she stayed with me at my, um, apartment with some roommates, and I, I didn't know that she was smoking at the time, and she would, um, go behind our house and smoke, and she wouldn't, she didn't tell me that she was smoking, and, (laughs) And I discovered her and I just thought, well, mom, just be honest with me about it. I don't want you to lie to me about who you are. How can I have a relationship with you when you're lying to me, you know? And and so that dynamic was difficult um, in the first place because she, f- she felt like she couldn't have a relationship with me as she was. Uh, she felt like she had to pretend to be someone she thought I wanted her to be, to have a relationship. So, but because, as you mentioned, I, I felt like no matter what, she's my mom, and and I always wanted to show her compassion and love. I, I always tried really hard um, to love her, and um, I, didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't lecture her, or I didn't need to do any of those things. She felt guilty enough on her own, but... I was always trying to build a relationship with her and it was it was something that was very difficult there were so many emotions wrapped up in in um in it you know getting getting through that feeling of uh, betrayal from her and the, the tragedy of what happened to our family and her leaving the church and it was a it was a very rocky road and I didn't see her very often you know once or twice a year maybe and so um but we were always trying. She was still my mom, you know. I I learned in that time that the Lord's time plan for his children is so different than what we think. And 
it's much more than this life even we are eternal beings and our progression is not begun and ended in this life it's much much bigger than that and he he knows all of these things he knows these things that are going to happen in our lives that are challenges and the ups and the downs and he never gives up on us ever and um during that time i recognized that when the lord said things were going to be okay just a few weeks before my parents got a divorce that maybe his timeline for my mom was different than mine and uh, that the best thing I could do was just love her, try to love her, you know. And so I did. I was always, always trying to love her. And that's hard to do sometimes when somebody feels so deeply guilty. And that guilt manifested in lots of different ways for her. She It manifested in resentment and anger um, and other times just sorrow and sadness and... <sighs> Anyway, I, we just tried to love each other despite all of our, our differences. And I'm glad we did because her, her journey in this world ended early. And I always kind of had a sense that if I didn't try to appreciate my mom while she was here, that I would regret it. Mm-hmm. And my mom was the kind who was so like overly loving she just gushed over her children gushed (laughs) so much so that from even a young age we um it it turned us off and we were always like mom get off you know wiping her lipstick off of our cheeks and like (laughs) pushing her away a little bit because she was so um, emotional and affectionate all the time it was overwhelming um But the last few years of her life, I started to feel like, even though I didn't understand what it was to be a mother yet, that I needed, I needed to respect and try to accept the love that she wanted to give me because it wouldn't always be there. So anyway. (laughs) And so maybe fast forward for us then to uh, a year prior to her ending her life and what what was happening leading up to those those last days yeah so she her partner um lisa bledsoe they were together for 16 years and um she died of a heart attack um it was very unexpected my mom woke up and found her on the floor and um, that changed everything for my mom. I uh, I don't think she really understood or knew how to process it, but the first thing she did was call me and say, Lisa's dead and I want to come back to church. And, and this was within hours of her wow. passing away. And I thought, Mom, I think you're in shock. <laughs> and... Um, she was all alone. She was living in Missouri. She had been a school teacher the whole time she was in Missouri. And and she was on Christmas break. And she just, she was alone. She didn't have anyone. And she was very um, codependent with her 
partner. They just were everything for each other, I guess, in a sense we're all codependent with our partners. But um, my mom didn't really know how to function without her, and she was really desperate. But um, one thing that she had always said was that if Lisa ever passed away, that she as soon as Lisa passed away, she would want to come back to church. Lisa, Lisa was not healthy. She always had some chronic health problems. But she felt like that she couldn't ever leave that relationship. She didn't want to leave that relationship. Um, but she she did want to go back to church. and She did want the community. And she did want to feel the spirit in her life again. In fact, often she would um, have missionaries come over and give them priesthood blessings when they were sick. And she would often call on the bishop in her ward. And um, and she had visiting teachers assigned to her. And she always was still associated with the church. But um, felt like she couldn't be a good active member, you know, while she was in this relationship with Lisa. So it had always been her plan, I guess. And so when Lisa passed away, um, she decided she was going to come back to church. And she started meeting with the missionaries and, and getting a lot of emotional support from her ward there and priesthood blessings. And um, and I thought, well, she's just kind of doing this as a coping mechanism. I'm not sure how sincere she is, but, but I saw it. I felt a change in her. And I don't know how else I can describe it other than I, I felt the life, I felt the light come back into her life. And when, when I talked about things or when she talked about the spirit again, I knew she was feeling it differently than she had in the past. And she talked about how wonderful it was to have the spirit in her home as she was taking the discussions and that, and how she had forgotten and how it felt like she was coming home again. So she got through all the missionary discussions and it was such a, it was such a fast transition. I just thought, man, I can't believe I've prayed for this for so long. And I, I put her name on the, the rolls of the temple for so many years. I mean, this had been going on for so long. And then just like that, everything was changing. And, um, she was going back to church every Sunday and, and everything was just different. <laughs> And so, anyway, she had completed the discussions, and she was in the process of uh, getting clearance to be rebaptized. And and I was uh, pregnant with our first child. We had gone out to to Nauvoo um, the early spring before he was born, and drove back through Missouri and saw my mom, and she met my. Well, she met my husband at our wedding, but spent a little time with her there. And and she was she'd just gotten out of school for her summer break, and she was still kind of uh, in a daze from losing her partner and kind of coping with life, but um, very anxious to be rebaptized and be part of the church again. I'll be forever grateful that we we saw her that last time. Um, about a month later, she she took her life and left a note behind that said it's just too hard to cope i'm sorry nicole please do my temple work mm -hmm. so even her very last thought was i want to be 
I want to be back. So, anyway, I, um, for those who have um, had their names removed from the rolls of the temple or been excommunicated um, in order to have those ordinances performed again, uh, you have to receive um, clearance from the First Presidency, something that uh, only general authorities can do. It's not the same as just being rebaptized. It's a different, different thing. So, um, communicated with Salt Lake and sent her, sent them things. She had written a letter to the church when she decided to have her name removed and ranted and <laughs> sent that, and then talked about her return and um, taking the discussions and. Something that always will um, stand out to me about her um, after Lisa died and when she was taking the discussions is I've mentioned how guilty she felt for the 16 years she was with Lisa about breaking up our family, but also feeling like she was doing wrong in the sight of the Lord. She she always said, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I, I, I have to. I don't have a choice. And, Anyway, some young missionary that was coming to her house and giving her discussions gave her a priesthood blessing. And in, in his blessing, he said to her, Margaret, you have been forgiven. And she called me and told me that. And, and she said, how is that possible? I've been living in sin for 16 years. How is it possible to just be forgiven? And I thought, I, <laughs> I don't know either. Don't you have to pay some sort of penance, you know? Isn't it going to take some time? And, and um, I've realized since that, no, it doesn't take time for the atonement to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Immediate goodness of God <laughs> happens in our lives in ways we don't understand. And she had suffered for long enough for her own sins. She had punished herself for long enough for her own sins. So I know that she left this life on the wrong, on the right, <laughs> going in the right direction. And I'm sure she's making great progress now. I was thinking how her the relationship that she had with the ward even when she was with her partner that that they were reaching out to her in love and and in these interactions that she was having with you and her ward members um they because they were loving interactions not easy i'm sure but uh interactions where she felt like she could still be accepted even where she was at that that paved a way for her to come back. Whereas if, if you or if uh, members of her ward had slammed the door, she may have wanted to come back, but how much harder that journey would have been. And so as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, waiting upon the Lord, <laughs> as well as the Lord's timetable and and yes, we have to think big picture because certainly as you were sharing, you know, that moment of the Lord saying, it'll be okay. Oh, it, 
it will be okay. And and the atonement of Jesus Christ always leaves a pathway open. And it is remarkable. It can be immediate. My father experienced the same thing soon after his excommunication, which is so ironic. You know, you would think that he that he would feel shut out, that the heavens would feel closed. But no, it was actually quite the opposite, that when he turned his heart to God and reached out to the Savior, just kind of like with Alma, that that he felt the love of the Lord and the strength to to get on that path of, of repentance. So thank you for sharing that, again, very tender, difficult story about your mom and, and that relationship because you've been so such a vocal advocate of traditional marriage how have you stood up for traditional marriage and maintained respectful relationships with those who disagree on that point well i was very involved in traditional marriage advocacy all through college i my first degree was in marriage family human development because i was so entranced by the marriage dynamic and wanting to get things right because things did not go right in my family and trying to figure out what's going what went on it was kind of a self form of self-therapy i guess and then i also got a master's degree in marriage family human development and during that time i um i be became involved in a well i i founded a group called stand for the family with some other people Um, this is when the same-sex marriage issue was really kind of heating up and we wanted to find the tools to be able to articulate um, the case for marriage and why it was important and we put on conferences at byu uh, that thousands of people attended and um two years in a row we raised the money it was it was totally something that that was uh, student-led and and then afterwards we after my first master's degree I went off to Washington DC and I worked for the Heritage Foundation as a fellow um, researching marriage issues and in public policy and um, worked with senators and congressmen and came back to BYU for a second master's degree in nonprofit management and I worked for the National Organization of Marriage and the Ruth Institute as a program director helping to equip young adults with the ability to talk about traditional marriage in such a hostile political environment and um, my whole life oriented around advocacy for family and all the while my mother was in a same-sex relationship and my younger brother as well is uh, same-sex attracted and has been in a relationship with his partner for 20 years Um, so people that i really loved were in these um, homosexual dynamics and it was really important for me that they knew i was not advocating for the family because I hated them or that I didn't love them or that I was trying to hurt them and um, my advocacy for the family was always from my understanding that children always have and always will need a mother and a father and that um, um, that two moms can be wonderful mothers but they can't be a father and two dads can be great parents but they can't be a mom 
and that every child deserves to know the two people that brought them into existence and that's what that's what marriage is marriage marriage protects children's right to have parents and so in my advocacy there was always a fine line of walking um, between having courage to defend traditional marriage and what I knew was true about the family and God's plan for his children so having courage to defend and be vocal about that but also having the love and the civility to engage with people who believe differently or who are living differently and to love them it really it, it really it comes down to love having the courage to love people who are different from you we've got this idea in our mind that if people are different from us that we can't love them or that we can't have a relationship with them or we need to change them and especially with political issues the political climate is so divisive and so filled with contention and in my advocacy as well I ran into lots of people who who did not know anybody who was homosexual and almost saw homosexual people as as evil or as the the adversary you know often I would remind the people that I worked with that we are not fighting against people we are fighting for ideas that are true but we are mm -hmm. not fighting against people and it's it's very important to not take up your um, moral stance and turn it against people you can you can have both you can you can have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be courageous. Um, but love is what makes us be kind and and civil and able to embrace people who are different from us. I love my brother very much. And I've had those awkward, uncomfortable conversations about how we believe differently. And, and I've told him I... I want you to know I don't do what I do because I hate you or I think that you're a bad person. I want you to know that I do what I do because I believe children need a mother and a father and also because I believe that the family is the Lord's way of raising his children that he that we all need family and with my mom as well and I I can honestly say that I don't think they have ever felt hatred from me in my advocacy obviously they aren't at the rallies that i went to speaking at the utah capitol mm -hmm. holding signs that say yay marriage but they also know that i love them and in all of my advocacy that i was would never do anything to try to hurt them or or use them i didn't ever traipse them out onto the stage as an example i don't know the harms of homosexuality or something like that it was never about it was never about people and I think if we can, with our testimony and our faith, um, with people who are at different places than we are with their understanding of truth, um, we don't have to make them the enemy. We can't make them the enemy. The Lord calls us to love them as our neighbor, whether we agree with them or not. And that is the higher calling even more important than defending the truth and the right is loving 
that doesn't mean accepting their behavior is right. Loving doesn't mean accepting behavior is right. Um, it, it means loving. And it takes the spirit, I think, to walk that fine line of defending the truth and being courageous, but also being kind and civil. You need both. And they're two sides of the same coin. Um, as Elder Oaks has said, we have truth and tolerance, and we need both. We can't surrender our beliefs entirely and say, you know what, do whatever you want to, because um, we know that certain things are harmful and that God has declared certain truths as um, irrevocable for a reason. And one of those is that marriage is between a man and a woman and that every child deserves a mother and a father. We know those truths will never change. They'll never change. So we never surrender that and we never, we never think that those things will change. But gosh darn it, we still love, love, love the heck out of people that don't believe that. Mm -hmm. We love them. That, because that's the only pathway that things would ever change for them. And we don't, we don't love with the motivation to change them. We love because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is the most important commandment. Something that I, I read recently, actually in a, a positive discipline book about parenting. <laughs> this does have a connection. Um, but we don't, we don't get better behavior from our children or from, or from anyone or change them by making them feel worse that we, we have to show love first before we can see positive change. And, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. It, it requires the spirit to walk that fine line of standing for truth, but doing so with love and with kindness. Uh, it really, it's about the state of our hearts, isn't it? Um, if we have a warring heart toward people, we can't, we can't love them. And so I think that's such a powerful idea that you expressed of, we, we stand for ideals. We, we, we fight for ideals and for truth, but the fight is never with the individual. Okay. So I love that. Um, thank you so much. I, and, and I have, I have wondered many times what does that look like how do I love people just on a day-to-day -day basis who who live differently and, and believe differently than I do and it 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 might look a little different in each case but I think we all know what it feels like mm -hmm. to love someone and so I think the answer there is maybe again looking inward and saying what is the state of my heart toward this person? And, and we can use that as a gauge of how we are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can never be about fighting people. That's never what the Lord's ever wanted it to be about either. My older brother now who, who taught in the MTC with me and went to BYU with me and went on a mission um, to South Africa and... Um, I really feel like was kind of my um, my partner in my family and as far as gospel living goes because my you know my mother left the church and my brother who was in the 
the same-sex relationship right now obviously left the church and um my father has always and still is faithful he remarried in the temple to a wonderful woman and still faithful and i i so appreciate his strength i've drawn a lot of strength from my father but um my older brother after my mom passed away um started getting angry at the church and has now become very vocal in his opposition to the church um, to the point of attending rallies <laughs> and sending around petitions and talking about the apostasy of the church and following other people that he thinks are prophets and he feels that our um, prophet and apostles are are fallen and that our gospel that the church has been corrupted and it's a bunch of men making money at the top and anyway the last few years um so my mom passed away the day before my my son was born so that's almost four years ago now and um and it's been a, a slow decline for him and watching him walk into apostasy and walk away from the church has been really painful and similar to my mom you know uh, when you love something so much and you share it with somebody there's a closeness that you have that can't be replicated when you can share the gospel the joy of the gospel with somebody there's a closeness and an intimacy there that you just cannot share otherwise and I and I mourn for that that absence with my younger brother Jonathan I love him but we don't share the intimacy of the gospel together and now to see my older brother leave as well it just it makes you think is is no one safe is there anyone that I can count on to stay here with me rowing and why why are they leaving I know that he knows this is true I was in the temple with him when he was sealed and the manifestation of the spirit was so strong I've been with him when he has felt those witnesses of the spirit and I know that he's felt them before and now we have conversations like I don't know if I've ever felt the spirit before I think that I was brainwashed on my mission and it's just painful it's hard to watch someone that you love so much leave something that you used to cherish together it hurts and I think that makes us feel defensive um, sometimes that's how we deal with pain is is um, with defense sometimes and when people are leaving the church and talking about the the brethren in disrespectful ways or finding fault um, and being critical it hurts and um, I found that it's not productive to go into the rabbit hole of all of the things that he thinks are wrong with the church. Um, it hurts me and it causes contention. And um, in in my journey of being really distressed about my brother, I think it's it's just a matter of time before he will also likely be excommunicated because of his very vocal opposition to the church and rallying against it. Um, I've wondered how can I, as you've mentioned Tara, how can I keep a relationship with my brother, somebody who's fighting against something that's so near to me. My mother never fought against the church, but my brother is 
in all-out war against the church. And um, I had a very strong impression when I was praying about him. I put his name in the rolls of the temple every time I go and I pray for him. And I've wondered in, in my sorrow, how can I keep a relationship with my brother that I love? And the very strong impression that I felt was you must focus on what you have in common. You mm -hmm. can't focus on what divides you. You can't because it will continue to divide. I have to look for the good in him and those things that we share. I have to look for those things that I love about him and focus on how he is an excellent father how he's a wonderful husband, how we're in the same stage of life together with small kids that are exhausting. I have to focus on the good together and magnify the light that we do share and not try to <laughs> wade through all of the problems and the anger that he feels. So anyway, that has really changed my relationship with him. And I've realized it's not my job to change his mind. It's not. It's my mm -hmm. job to love him. And he is a child of God, like my mom, like me, like my brother, like everyone else. And the Lord knows where he is. And he has not given up on David, and nor will he ever. And David has his journey to take with his feelings and his anger, and he will. And the Lord will never abandon him. But it's not my job to change his mind and to solve his problems. It's simply my job to love him and see the good in him. And that takes work sometimes, mm -hmm. especially when somebody's assailing and attacking something that's so precious to you. So I don't, I don't read his Facebook posts anymore <laughs> about the church. I don't cringe and I don't let it steal my peace. Um, I, I just focus on the good that I can find in him. And, and although our relationship is more limited now in that intimacy that we can feel because we don't share the gospel anymore, he's still my brother and I still love him. And he knows that he knows that I would do anything for him. And we make, make it a point to see each other and to sacrifice, to spend time together. And, and that's what it, that's where it is right now. And I mm -hmm. still hope and pray that, that he'll work through this and come back one day. But in the meanwhile, I'm, I'm not going to let him take me on his journey of anger and bitterness. I'm going to say, I'm going to bless and release him to do that on his own and just love him for what we do have in common now. I think there are a lot of people that will appreciate those words because you're absolutely right. I, I think it's one of the great challenges that we have as members of the church is I and maybe I'll speak for myself. So I, I feel that weight of, I want to bring as many of my loved ones with me as I can <laughs> and like trying to, you know, tug them along with me, pull them along. But we, we, we can't carry anybody on our shoulders. They have to want to come. Uh -huh. And the very best way for people to want to come is to love them and leave them in the Lord's hands and believe that this, that this is his work and, and he won't 
forget our loved ones who are struggling and not panic. I think so many of us, we, in our limited view, we panic like, oh, but what, what about so-and-so, I, a spouse or a, a sibling or a good friend? If we, if we stop panicking and again, just trust in the Lord, believe in his timetable and love that individual, then we won't. I think that we can still have that relationship as we're focusing on the good and not feeling like I have to fix this because it's not our, it's not ours to fix. It's not our, our issue to fix. It's in the Lord's hands. So thank you so much for sharing that. A lot of wisdom there. So ultimately, Nicole, because you, (laughs) I think you have your fair share of reasons of why you would, you could say I'm out of here, but why are you choosing faith in the restored church? Why are you still rowing? Because it's true, Tara. It's not a it's not a choice whether or not it's true. It is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And I know that. And I know that his church, while imperfect, is the vehicle that he has chosen to work through on this earth to bless his children with temple covenants and ordinances. And I know that the man that leads this church, President Nelson, is his chosen prophet and is an instrument in his hands along with his counselors and his the Quorum of the Twelve. I know that. And that has come over years of feeling that through the spirit and it's etched in my heart in a way like it has been for my mom that even if I were ever to do anything where I felt like I had to leave the church that I would still know I would still know in my heart forever that it's true and I will always have to reconcile my my decisions and my behavior and my actions with that knowledge it's not a choice it's it's a knowledge now and so and so you keep growing even when things get really hard because where else where else would you go and you know president Iring recently in a talk in general conference he said he had confided in a member of the First Presidency about how he doubted that his family members would be with him after this life because of some of the choices they made, and he lamented that. And the advice that he got was, you're focusing on the wrong problem. You're focusing on the wrong person. And and we don't know what eternity looks like, but what we do and can control is our choices and decisions and actions and that is what the Lord wants us to do is to become better disciples of Jesus Christ and and to focus our efforts on learning how to love more not how to judge people better mm-hmm. <laughs> he wants us to figure out how to get the beam out of our own eye and learn how to love better because there's plenty of work for us to do on ourselves without having to worry about working on other people. That's not our job. It's just nobody else is our job. Just us. 
The Lord teaches that over and over and over again. He calls us to love, to love him first, and then to love his children, all of his children. That's why I keep rowing, because I have a relationship with the Savior, and I know that the gospel is true and that the church is his vehicle on the earth. And so it's not an option of convenience, or if it gets too hard, I'm bailing or jumping ship. That's not ever an option, (laughs) because the waters outside of the ship are much worse. And I know that I would crash against the shore. Um, And aside from that, I I know where I'm supposed to be, and that doesn't change no matter how hard it gets. It doesn't change no matter how hard it gets. I may want it to. I may want to give up and say, it's too hard, so I'm going to stop. Well, it's not going to get any easier <laughs> if I jump ship. I think it would get harder. I'm so grateful the Lord has blessed me so tremendously through my life. And I know that. I know he's the one who supported me through my trials and helped me with my family. And I know that he has been there waiting through the difficult times with me and given me strength to go forward. And it's because of my relationship with him um, that I keep doing what I'm doing and try to be a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. You are an elect lady. I'm just going to say it. And thank you for your testimony and, and sharing some very tender things today. I appreciate you taking the time to be with me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.